Subscribe to The Spectator this summer and get the next 10 weeks of the magazine as well as unlimited access to our website and app for just £10. Not only that, we'll send you a bottle of Pims absolutely free, only while stocks last. So go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash Pims to claim this offer now. Welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read out their articles from the latest issue. This week, we'll have our columnist Douglas Murray reading his article on Angela Rayner and the tactics of victimhood. Then he'll be joined by James Walton, who reviews the latest Bond film, calling it a compelling mess. And finally, The Cult of Iron Brew, written by Katie Balls. First, it's Douglas Murray. The tactics of victimhood. Late last week, the Labour deputy leader was the subject of a glowing profile in The Times. The piece described Angela Rayner's alleged physical similarity to Nicole Kidman, spoke indulgently of her outspokenness and otherwise confirmed my suspicion that most of the people who go into politics should never be allowed near the stuff. Rayner described herself as having thrived off the chaos of recent years, Apparently, the trauma, the screaming, the unpredictability, this is my bread and butter. She continued, In fact, I think it's strange when people are nice. I find taking compliments more difficult than taking abuse, to be honest. I've never had that love and affection, so I don't crave it. That's really sad, because I see how people can be fulfilled by those things, and I can't. A matter of hours later... Rayner indulged in a bit of unaffectionate Tory bashing. Not for the first time, she described the Conservatives as a bunch of scum and made the typically dishonest accusations that the left levels at everyone they oppose. Racist, homophobic, misogynist. A certain amount of backlash followed, but Rayner's own side indulged her. Labour leader Keir Starmer simply said it was not language he would use of Her Majesty's government. Others, such as former Shadow Chancellor John MacDonald, cheerily insisted that we all get a bit overheated at times and, besides, how could any decent person not be angry at a government doing such unforgivable things as this one is allegedly doing? In other words, the left, as usual, rallied. The amiably wrong Zoe Williams wrote in The Guardian that the Tories were cynically deploying the language of fake hurt and victimhood when they presumably should have either accepted the critique or chortled along as all these prominent leftists would have had such words been used about them. Naturally, the people indulging Rayner's fighting talk are almost all the same people who have spent recent years calling for greater civility in our public debate. Specifically, they have called for greater care with words. Just two years ago, Rayner herself told the BBC that parliamentarians have a responsibility to dial down our language. But whatever the left says, their instincts always make them behave otherwise. They cannot help themselves. Because while the right tend to think that their opponents are merely wrong-headed, the left always seems to think that their opponents are evil. This causes a great asymmetry in our politics. 
Kemi Badenoch, then a newly elected MP, referenced this at the Conservative Party conference in 2017 when she acted as a warm-up for Theresa May. Bannock used the occasion to tell several important truths. One was that if there was anything you could be sure of during party conference season, it was that no Labour Party member would be barracked or spat at on their way into their conference by a gang of Conservative Party members. There would be no right-wing protesters or thuggish groups affiliated with the Conservative Party standing outside the Labour conference. Yet the obverse is often the case. Delegates going into Conservative Party conference often have to pass protests of militant leftists spitting on them and hurling insults like scum and more. Raise the question of why this is, and the left will always issue the same set of responses. They either deny it is the case, or they say that you have to understand that people are angry when they witness a party doing insert excuse here. One of the current justifications for calling Conservatives scum is that the government is making cuts to universal credit. You only have to turn this around to see how ridiculous it sounds. Imagine crowds of militant Conservatives gathered outside the Labour Party conference, screaming insults at its members and, when asked why they are doing this, replying, well, they keep arguing for increased levels of borrowing. This wouldn't be received joshingly, would it? But of course, the left has one final trick up its sleeve, which its members now deploy with great skill. The cry-bully tactic. Which is that, after hounding their opponents without restraint or censure, they wait until somebody says something even mildly mean about them. They then throw their hands in the air, call for the sympathy of their comrades and announce that they themselves are a victim and therefore in the right. One reason I suspect that Rayner receives such glowing press is the knowledge that the slightest criticism of her will trigger her into making accusations of misogyny and classism. She would use homophobia and racism if she could. Over recent months, three of the most prominent and unpleasant leftist commentators in Britain all deployed this tactic. Having risen to prominence for virulently insulting all their opponents, they then perform this magnificent trick, which is to suddenly tell everyone that they are suffering from stress or some similar upset because of the hate directed against them. As though the people they direct hatred towards do not suffer, or perhaps simply deserve to suffer. Their calculation is that by being seen as a victim, they also become unassailable. It is a great tactic, this, and one that no Conservative would ever think of deploying. People of the right do not ask for pity, because they recognise that to do so is not just self-indulgent, but also only adds to the general misery. Kemi Badenoch is a fine example. In recent months, she has been the subject of repeated attacks from left-wing publications which have consistently tried to portray her as, guess what, a racist, misogynistic homophobe. Badenoch 
is quite clearly none of these things. But, using doctored quotes and more, this is the critique the left have pushed. I do not doubt that they would have caused her upset and distress. But they do not care about this, and Badenoch does not go around pleading for sympathy. Which is not just a difference between right and left, but between victims and victors. Something the left might think on, if they could. That was Douglas Murray. And now, James Wharton's review of the latest Bond film. The times being what they are. These days, James Bond is not just the main character in the Bond films. He's also had to become a defiant metaphor for them. Since Daniel Craig took over the role, Bond has regularly been told that he's badly outdated. Yet, by the closing credits, he's once again proved how much the world still needs him. That this has been reflected at the box office is, I'd suggest, largely down to one neat trick. Craig's Bond films have thrown in just enough gruff emoting to get people to go along with the pretense that his Bond is a radical reinterpretation, while still essentially sticking to their trusty old-school methods. And for a bit, this looks like being true of No Time to Die as well. Picking up where Spectre left off, it first shows us Bond enjoying a spot of gentle domesticity with his new love Madeline, played by Leia Sedu. Before long, though, he survived both an explosion and various machine-gun attacks, ridden a motorbike up some steep Italian steps, blown away several baddies with the guns from his Aston Martin, and made an implausible leap to safety from a high bridge. At which point, cue the opening song. From there, we cut to five years later, when Bond has retired to Jamaica alone, having decided that Madeline set all those now-dead baddies on him. He also seems to have accepted that the world may have changed since his day. Until, that is, a sinister organisation of fantastic ruthlessness and reach steals a biological weapon with the apparent, if unexplained, aim of killing millions. And with that, as you might imagine, Bond comes out of retirement. Reporting for duty, he discovers what many of us have known for ages, that he's been replaced as 007 by a non-male, non-white successor, Lashana Lynch, although only until she realises what a great guy he is and insists that M give him his old title back. Bond's investigations duly lead him to the imprisoned Blofeld, now in full Hannibal Lecter mode, but it also means that he crosses paths with Madeline again, decides she didn't betray him after all, and gets in touch with his inner softy far more wholeheartedly than ever before, at least when he's not slaughtering henchmen by the dozen, a fair proportion of them in a secret island lair off Japan, owned by a disfigured villain. In other words, No Time to Die is, by all traditional criteria, completely bonkers. Certainly, anybody who's never seen a Bond movie before will surely be left pretty bewildered, and not only because the Craig films are more serial than series, with viewers expected to remember 15 years of interwoven plotting. By cranking Bond's emotional life to 11, rather than making polite 21st century nods to its possible existence, while still sticking to those trusty old-school methods, it ends up feeling like two very different films running in uneasy parallel. And yet, as cinematic messes go, this one proves undeniably hard to resist. For a start, Craig plays every scene with such conviction that only when the film is over do you begin to notice how contradictory many of them were. More paradoxically, the whole thing is made with such shameless brio that the messiness itself becomes part of the fun. That was James Wharton. And finally, Katie Balls, our deputy political editor, on why she loves Iron Brew. There aren't many countries where Coca-Cola isn't the most popular drink. Scotland is one of them. And unlike some of the others, such as North Korea or Cuba, it's not because Coke isn't sold. It's because of the popularity of Iron Brew, Scotland's other national drink. Few soft drinks have such a devoted following as Iron Brew. It is inspired tattoos, 
poetry, a drop of your liquid gold, and in true Scottish style, its own batter. Why is it so popular? It helps it is an excellent hangover cure, but has something else going for it, a sense of fun. Ironbury is known for pushing things a little too far in advertising campaigns. There was a famous billboard in 2003 to promote the diet version, which featured a bikini-clad model and the caption, I never knew 4.5 inches could give me so much pleasure. Ironbury was founded in Falkirk in 1901 by the Scottish pharmacist Robert Barr, after his career as a cork cutter came to an end. While the bright orange soft drink does contain a very small amount of iron, 0.002%, Bar had to change its name from Iron Brew in 1947, owing to the fact it isn't actually brewed. Few people are sure what exactly is in Iron Brew. It is said that only three people know the recipe. Robin Barr, the great-grandson of the founder, his daughter Julie, and a mystery third person. Connoisseurs say that they can detect hints of citrus, blackcurrant and ginger. I taste bubblegum with a hint of steel. I will not have been the only one who felt a wave of panic last week when the manufacturer, A.G. Barr, warned that the national carbon dioxide shortfall could lead to an iron brew shortage. It's not the first time fans have resorted to stockpiling. In 2018, there was another panic when A.G. Barr announced it was going to change its recipe to reduce the sugar content by half because of the government's new sugar tax. Thousands of people signed a Hands of Our Iron Brew petition. Brew purists rushed to supermarkets to bulk buy. I had my own strategy. I hoarded as many cans as possible under my bed in my small London flat and dispatched my parents in Scotland to supermarkets to sort out a home supply. I also became a far more demanding customer in my local chip shop, asking the surprisingly understanding staff to double-check each can for sugar content before they passed it over. Although the less sugary version of Iron Brew is now the status quo, there are options for purists who look hard enough. After the change, around 100 cans made from the old recipe were found in a Luton newsagent's stockroom. Word spread on Facebook and the cans sold out in 15 minutes. For those who don't fancy spending the day trawling the internet for Iron Brew leads, there's now a special sugar-filled 1901 edition for aficionados. That was Katie Balls. Thanks for listening to this episode of Spectator Out Loud. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, do leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening and join us again next week.